Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome everybody to the Cash Flow to Freedom podcast, which may have already changed to the AJ Osborne podcast. We are still waiting to get our uh, cover art and intro done, which has been uh, slacking off by me, but we're going to get it done. And uh, as you guys know, we talk about all things investing, um, wealth, growth, cash flow on this podcast. And one of the areas that we've not ever talked a lot about stocks, dividend, investing portfolio, how to approach that kind of stuff. So I'm really excited about today's podcast um, with Nick. And he comes from us from Passive. He's the director of growth there. And he's going to talk to us about the current landscape and some different ways to go about managing this side of investing. So with out holding off anymore. Let's bring him in. Nick, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, AJ. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this subject. Um, I invest in stocks. Um, I use my uh, old 401ks, but I have some IRAs as well as personally, but it's really not an area of expertise. So thank you for coming on and talking to us about stocks, bonds, and overall investment philosophy. We're really excited to dig into it. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background. Talk to me about, um, first of all, how you got into the investing world and what your background in it is. Absolutely. So I'll start off by just saying thanks for having me on. It's kind of you know really exciting to be talking with you today. My background in, in finance and investing, I would say you could trace back to when I was in college. And you know, like a lot of college students, I had summer jobs and whatnot and, and kind of developed a bit of savings through the years. And it turns out that you know, day trading, investing in stocks, all those things are pretty easy to self-educate yourself on if you just navigate around on the internet and you have that desire. At the same time, I was in school for biology because I was, you know, kind of gunning for medical school. As you can tell kind of by where I'm at today, that's not what ended up happening because it turns out that I didn't really have any passion for learning about plants and and mammals. So (laughs) after my first year of college, I asked my academic advisor, like, hey, what can I switch into that will still allow me to graduate at my undergrad in four years because I don't have to spend any extra time here if I don't have to. So she said, why don't you go try and do a degree in math? It turns out I always liked math. I I was kind of good at it. So I went and kind of switched into a math major. It turns out that a lot of the good internships and summer jobs for math majors are in finance. So I went and worked at one of the largest uh, mutual fund providers in Canada, doing some accounting and spreadsheet work for them that summer. That was kind of my introduction to finance, and I've kind of been in love with it ever since. That's awesome. That's all. Math is is obviously good at this. And now, when you're looking at overall investing, um, it, we live in a unique time and world, obviously, for multiple reasons across the board. Um, a lot of investing defies logic. Um, it confuses people, and it it can be scary, um, especially I feel like in markets where they have little control. As you know, you know, I principally invest in value add strategy, commercial real estate. Um, and one of the reasons that I like that is because of control, right? Um, now that in no way, shape or form means I haven't, I've, uh, invested 
in uh, the stock market. I used to do it a lot. I principally worked with um, options like leaps um, where I felt that I had a longer term uh, viewpoint and I could express that viewpoint monetarily through the use of options uh, with stocks. And then I was a long term buy and hold kind of guy. I simply looked at earnings, fundamentals, portfolio, because I just didn't understand the stock market. So I'm like, okay, I get this company right now is trading at a very low times earning. I think that there's great potential. So I'd buy it and I'd just like walk away. Or even in my use of options, I had to really extend out the length of that option and I'd do leaps. I didn't like short-term options because I didn't understand the what I viewed the chaotic world of investing that was um, irrational to me because it just didn't make sense. Uh, so that has kind of always been my thing, but I've I've always, always been invested in diversified uh, amongst stocks, bonds, and I've used tax savings accounts to do those things. Um, what is your general philosophy when you look at investing? Um, how do you approach this? What do you, how do you look? Because there's so many avenues that people use to go about investing. It's, it, it's so intriguing to me and it blows me away because of how many options and strategies there are. What is your viewpoint, your kind of overall investing philosophy? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting you ask that question because I would say in my career, I've really kind of spanned the gamut. So as you know, there's lots of different ways to invest. You have commodities guys, you have options guys, you have you know just basic stock, long-term buy and hold guys. And then you have, aside from all that, a separate group of investors that we would call like passive investors. So they just buy broad market index funds and try to just get broad exposure because they don't have a strong view that they want to express through their investments or, uh, you know, they just see the benefits of having a broadly diversified por portfolio. So in my first job at a college, I worked for like an active investment research firm. So we did really deep dives on individual companies, trying to identify competitive advantages and selling our research to people who wanted to have a very active view in their investment portfolios. And while that's a suitable strategy for certain folks, it has you know, downsides as well. You have to spend a lot of time doing research. Your portfolio management takes more time. And then if you really want to be an active investor, you have to be somewhat concentrated in your holdings. And what that means is that you have to have kind of a small number of holdings that you have strong views on, and you have to invest a large amount of your portfolio into each of those holdings. If you were going to make a real estate analogy, you might say a diversified investor might have a hundred small properties where a really concentrated investor might buy one really big property in downtown New York and one really big property in downtown San Francisco. And then the concentration of that means that if either of those properties does really well, the investor is going to do well. But if either of them does really poorly, then the investor will do poorly as well. Whereas on a diversified portfolio, the impact of each individual holding is less. So that was kind of my first job doing really active, concentrated, fundamental stock market research. And then over time, just kind of running that investment research route race, you kind of realize this might not be for everyone. And uh, kind of what we do now at Passive is we, we, you know, we build tools to help passive investors. And what a passive investor does is very different. It's basically someone who says, I want exposure to the stock market because if you look at the historical returns or the forward outlook, then the stock market kind of is broadly accepted to be a nice place to invest money. But we don't want to you know, we don't want to be concentrated in individual stocks or individual investments. So we're going to just buy broad market ETFs and get, you know, exposure to all of the large publicly traded businesses in America or in the globe. So um, I would say now my investment outlook really focuses on diversification. It focuses on reducing your fees to the extent possible. It focuses on being tax advantaged. So this whole idea of asset location and 
in which accounts do you want to hold each of your different investments so that you pay the least amount of tax? Those are all things that I think are really low hanging fruit when it comes to improving your long-term financial outlook that doesn't require a ton of investment research or a ton of time spent on portfolio management or anything like that. So to sum up, I would say I started in my career as a really active investor, slowly over time I've transitioned to more of a passive approach and even have kind of a couple of rental properties now for that added diversification outside of the stock market. So yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, so you're in a few different asset classes, real estate, stocks. Um, talk to me about when working with investors, what do you see at, when, you, when most investors, where do they fall? So when you guys are looking at investors across the board, what is the, I, I would say, the prevailing philosophy of your average investor? If you're talking about investors who use our platform, definitely the prevailing uh, outlook, I would say, is definitely passive. Our company is named passive kind of for that reason. We're designed to, to kind of take care of the passive investor. But with that said, lots of passive investors explore you know, what we call fund money on the side. So they might have 95% of their public markets investable assets in ETFs, diversified, low-risk funds. And then they might have 5% that they say, okay, I like the idea of following the stock market to an extent. And I want to have the chance to invest in companies whose products I like or who I think are going to grow really fast or what have you. So as an example, if I was an investor who kind of followed this fun money approach or what some people call a core and explore approach, so that 95% would be their core portfolio and the 5% would be their explore portfolio, I might say, okay, in this 5% that's fun money or my explore sleeve, I'm going to just pick some stocks that I think are going to do well. I might buy some Tesla stock or I might buy some Apple stock because I really like my Tesla Model 3 and I really love my Apple MacBook Pro. So we see lots of investors follow that strategy instead of just following a pure play passive approach where all of their assets are invested in diversified funds. Now, with your experience, what do you, what would you say? And I know this is hard. I don't know if you can give an answer to this, but what is a more successful route for an individual to go? And obviously, this depends on a lot of things like goals. I would say, generally speaking, though, the people who listen to this po- podcast um, are looking for passive income. That's generally the goal. We believe strongly in time separation from income, but at the same time, they expect and we're looking for growth. So it's a combination of time separation from money while actively growing your wealth. Um, when looking at that in the stock market, when you're saying, you know, how does one be engaged um, actively in the stock market without taking substantial risks? Yeah, I'll answer your first question and then your second question, I guess. The first one was what you think is more successful way to invest. And I would say the best active investors in the world have amazing results. There's no question about that. If you look at if you look at investors like Warren Buffett or even some older examples like Benjamin Graham, who many people say is like the father of value investing, or some hedge fund guys like Joel Greenblatt, some of like the best of the best, just like any field, have amazing results. And I think because a lot of these results are made public through investment fund filings or things of that nature, a lot of people look to that and aspire to have those types of long-term investment results, you know, 20% returns for 50 years or, or what have you. But if you look at the data, the data kind of suggests that the majority of active managers or active investment funds actually underperform their passive benchmarks. So if you have an investment fund that's benchmarked to the S&P 500, 
the S&P 500 is just a group of the 500 largest publicly traded companies in the U.S. So a lot of large investment funds are benchmarked to that. And the reason they're benchmarked to that or what that means is that their performance is compared to that benchmark so that people can see how well they're doing. Yes. And the honest truth is most of like most active managers underperform their benchmarks. And there doesn't really seem to be a good way to predict who's going to underperform or who's going to outperform. But if you just kind of follow the law of averages, if you pick a random investment fund, it's more likely than not to underperform its benchmark. So what does that mean? It means that if you want to invest money and be kind of be guaranteed an average outcome, instead of trying to pick a fund that might have an above average outcome, but is unlikely to, you would want to engage in passive investing and just buy a broad-based index fund that kind of invests solely in um, the constituents of that index. So as an example, you could buy an S&P 500 index fund and it would own all 500 companies in the S&P 500 with no modifications to the index. So that's kind of what- I Which is actually what data. Warren Buffett suggests. That is yeah. literally what he suggests. He said, if, yeah. if you would go back, he's like, when I started, and he's like, and simply buy the index fund, you'd be incredibly wealthy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the problem is kind of just sticking to that plan and staying out of your own way along the way. Um, Warren Buffett actually, to kind of talk about what he's plans for his estate, he's a, you know, many times over billionaire, one of the richest guys in the world. But what he's instructed his estate to do once he dies is to just invest 90% in the S&P 500 index fund and 10% in short-term treasury bills. And that 10% is just for liquidity. So if they ever need to do anything with his estate, they can sell those because they're not very volatile. So to answer your second question about risk, I would say one of the main measurements of risk in stock market investing is just diversification. So like I said, with the example with the two properties earlier, if you have your eggs in lots of different baskets, what happens to any one of those individual baskets is not that material to the overall success of your investment portfolio. To use the example of the S&P 500 index fund again, if you're investing in the S&P 500 index fund and a company in that fund goes bankrupt, it's only one five hundredth of the entire value of your portfolio. So not a big deal. And that's actually not exactly how the math works because the constituents of that index are um, sized according to how big the companies are. So Apple, a really big company, would have like a bigger weighting in that index than like General Motors, a smaller company. But, you know, roughly speaking, you would have about one five hundredth of your portfolio disappear if one company goes bankrupt. If you're an active investor and you own three or five stocks and one of those companies does badly, you're going to hurt. So... I would say that probably one of the main ways to avoid bad outcomes in investing is just to make sure that you're appropriately diversified. Yeah, it, this is an interesting subject when it comes down to risk and one that um, I was obsessed with about 10 years ago because as I was trying to go through the world and I was investing and it was in 2008 and I didn't really understand debt cycles. I was getting my master's and studying economics during this time. And I was buying companies that had high cash flow. Um, I became very, very obsessed with wealth and um, risk and how those two things are associated. So, you know, Joel Greenblatt, Warren Buffett, um, you know, all these other people, you know, I started reading. And one of the things that they found uh, across the board was that your outcomes outperform simply by not losing money. So what that means when you're looking at compounding out your rate of return, like you said, if you're not a hundred if you're not really, really sure and you have three investing and you lose 30%, well, the performance of those other two don't equal like it's not 30% now to make up. It's 60%. And yet you lost 30% of the yeah, base. I mean, so you example. have to gain 30 and make 30% on that 
to get back to even. And so they talk a lot about how when you're investing, that one hit can take away, even if all the other ones performed amazingly, it doesn't matter anymore. You're negative. And how that is such a destructive part of investing. So this idea of just don't lose money. And like Warren Buffett says, if you don't lose money and you put it in an index fund, you're going to be way better than 99% of all investors. This is an interesting subject to me when dealing with risk. Absolutely. I mean, Warren Buffett kind of famously says the rule number one of investing is don't lose money. And rule number two is never forget rule number one. So it's kind of a nice colloquialism to describe that. Yes, exactly. Um, and the reason I was obsessed with this was because at the time I was uh, losing money on an acquisition that I had done that had gone bad. And when I started doing the math, it was outrageously depressing what that had done to my overall financial <laughs> well-being and families yeah. and everything else. Um, so I became this portfolio management um, became very, very intriguing to me. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I liked getting into real estate. And as far as my stocks go, I've uh, used certain types of platforms to basically automate, which will self-readjust or follow um, basic index funds. And then I use a percentage, like you said before, of mine to express my economic views monetarily. That's how I look at it. That's all I'm doing. I'm I'm using capital to express to the market my philosophical views on stocks and market things in a monetary form. So it's like me voting or vo voicing an opinion more than it is actually working at the long term. So I base all my goals and structure off that off the conservative index things that is automated and I've walked away from because I actively invest in something that produces cash flow. The reason is because I can allocate that cash flow back in to compound out. So when I looked at stocks, if it's not producing cash flow, it's outrageously important to me that it doesn't lose money because yeah, I'm absolutely. not reproducing the capital. Yeah, I would say uh, one way that a lot of investors kind of avoid that problem is by investing in dividend stocks or especially some of like the higher dividend stocks that some people view as safe. But even then, I mean, if you're investing in individual stocks because of the dividend yield, you still have a lot of concentration risk because you're exposed to anything bad that happens in that specific business. Perfect example of that is GE in 2008. I mean, Absolutely. GE was giving, what, a 4% dividend? And yeah, I mean, and you can even say the same thing about GE in 2018. The same kind yeah, of thing basically happened. 100%. They're given this great dividend, people bought it, and then it lost half its value. It didn't matter if you made that dividend for a decade or more, you lost all your money. And yeah. so, you know, I and I agree. I love dividend stocks because of that play. In fact, I tell people, you want to make a good money, you buy a diversified dividend portfolio, you reduce exposure as much as possible, generally speaking, below what your average rate of return is. So I look at this and say, if the average stock market makes 6%, I can't concentrate any one of those investments within 6% because it could blow away my total earnings. So if you had less than a 4% and they were all dividend paying, you averaged a 6% return in stock market equity appreciation, plus your dividends that could be reallocated. Even if a couple of them do badly, you'll always be net positive. Does that make sense? How I yeah, look like, yeah, totally. Like, Basically, you're not you're not willing to risk more than one year of your expected returns in any individual security. That's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. 
Um, now, of course, I do that with my core, but then my other stuff that I use, I'm out buying long-term options. Um, so, And most of that, though, too, is based upon, um, uh, you know, it's an active investment uh, philosophy. You know, there's a couple people that have a stock market investing philosophy. It's not active investment. It's event-driven. Have you heard of this, event-driven investing? Yeah, so like spinoffs or, or corporate actions, things of that nature. Is that what yes. you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. So I utilized a lot of event-driven investing in things that I understood more. A perfect example was things like Walgreens and their contractual nature between the drug companies, where when Walgreens was hit by like 60%, their earning or their stock market fell because they were in contract disputes with the insurance companies to allow the prescriptions, the insurance companies to back the prescriptions in the company, right? So the stock market act as if the company was going under, which I understood and knew. I said, the, con the, the insurance companies can't live without them, vice versa, right? This will end up getting figured out. And plus, they don't make their money on that. That's a way to drive people in. So with that said, I bought a two-year leap option saying within this time frame, I understood because uh, I worked in insurance and I worked with the insurance companies. And I literally would call and ask <laughs> and say, hey, when are these disputes going to be reconciled? And they said, within 12 months, we will have a uh, thing. So I bought out as long as I could, which for me, because I'm not an institutional, was a leap, which is a two-year option, um, because I knew the first year it would dis be disputed, uh, which led me to believe that within year two, three, or whatnot, it would return to normal, right? And that obviously played out exceptionally, because the stock rebounded like 45% or whatnot on the first news that they were even going to be, and that's a use of leverage. But those were things that I deeply understood. So there's lots of things that I don't ever get into, and that's a very small percentage of my portfolio because that exact same token, they could have easily, the insurance company, been like, ah, we couldn't come to an agreement, so we're not doing it. And the stock fallen further, right? I don't have control right. of that. And when I view investing, that's what it really comes down to is control. If I can't control the outcome or control the revenue that is produced from it, then I need to look at being diversified and limiting the risk because I'm dependent on other people. And I don't know when you get three guys that turn Enron into a Ponzi scheme, right? I just don't right. know. Well, I think Enron is kind of like a classic example of the risks of concentration. It was named like the most innovative company, I think, by Fortune magazine for a few years in a row. And no, the they were very innovative, was just, kind just of not legal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, financially innovative. Financially innovative. They, they innovated a way to avoid taxes. <laughs> yeah, so for anyone who's unfamiliar with that story, Enron was a big oil and gas company back in the 1990s who engaged in a lot of like oil and gas futures trading. And they also had pipelines of some actual energy assets. But it turns out that like most of their profits were coming from illegal activities and fraud that they were doing in their energy trading business. And when that kind of all came to a head, the company went bankrupt and the equity investors lost all of their money. So definitely one of the and largest that was like, and most kind of It was like one of the top biggest companies in the nation. Wasn't it? it was like top five or something like that? Yeah, it was a big company, big blue chip company, had thousands and thousands of employees. And I think it was the biggest bankruptcy in history at that time. I think yeah. it was passed later on by uh, WorldCom, maybe some internet company, I think beat it a few years later, but it was, it was big news. This was around 2000, 2001, I believe. And it was a financial institution too. So the banks got hit hard. And, you know, I, I view these things, you know, in the investing terms, you call them black swans, correct? 
Yeah. Like they just come out of nowhere and we don't know. Like coronavirus is a black swan. Yeah. So the whole idea of a black swan is like most swans are white, right? So when you see a black swan, it's, it's really rare. And the investing concept of a black swan is it's a extremely rare adverse event that comes along once in a very long time. Coronavirus is a black swan, for example. And uh, you can never predict when they're going to come. But if you're going to be an investor, you kind of have to be prepared to stomach the black swans as they come. Exactly. And I like to think of that. And it's always you're waiting for the domino that's going to hit everything else. And, you know, perfect example of that being, as we're literally on here talking, I got a text um, with a, um, a clip from the, uh, from the newspaper, mortgage delinquency soars, New Orleans, as of November 30th, all, 10% of all mortgages are delinquent. Wow. That's actually not as high as I would have thought, given how tough coronavirus has been on, like, you know, most uh, blue chip kind of or uh, blue collar workers in the nation. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to see as this speeds up and what's going to happen and how this is all going to affect it. But you wonder the contagion. Right. So it's not necessarily the event. It's what happens from it. And I look at this like in 2008, the homes falling wasn't the real problem in value, right? It was the CDOs, the collateralized debt obligations that backed them that the banks had to pay out to investors that bought the insurance policies that created billions and billions upon billions of dollars of loss. So it was a contagion. One thing hit and it started to spread. And it spread through, in 2008, it spread through the financial system, which obviously devastated everything, even while it was happening. People didn't understand what was going on. So when I look at black swans, I don't not only know when a black swan is coming, I don't know what contagion that will cause within our system. I don't know what effect it will have, right? I don't know what banks are doing in their big black box. I don't know what Enrons are moving that this coronavirus is going to erupt and all of a sudden they're going and it just kind of continues down the line. And that's why diversification and what you're talking about is so important. People that think that they know everything are the fool. People that are 100% sure that their investing strategy or can't fail, things like that, they're, they're the fool in the room. So I like to be in control of my investments, but I love platforms that allow me to do that in not only a passive way, but a risk diversified way. And I love those tools. And so, you know, that's one thing that the company that you work for that we're, we're talking about, it does and it allows. Um, I'm big on automation because I don't have time anyways. So I love simplicity and in investing because I know what I'm trying to do, diversify my holdings and allow tool, tools that allow me to do that. When um, though you're looking, one of the big things that I would tell investors to be aware of, and I want to get your opinion, the most eroder for the uh, uh, passive investor is fees. Talk to me about investing fees and tell, let, help people understand what that is, why that erodes away your earnings. And what you guys believe in, what you look out for, and what people should look out for when talking about funds, right, index funds, anything else like that. I think to understand the kind of the direction of investing fees over time, it's helpful to have like some historical context on investment funds in general. So if you look back historically, the first investment funds were all mutual funds. And what a mutual fund is, it's a type of investment fund. So a bunch of investors pool their money for that money to be invested by a professional investment manager. 
And mutual funds are kind of distinguished by the fact that they only trade once a day. So if you put in an order for a mutual fund, they will do all of the buying and selling and reorganization of who owns with the money in that fund once a day. So if you send off 500 bucks to put in a mutual fund, you actually don't know how many units of that fund you're going to get until they send you back the trade confirmation later that day. So mutual funds are pretty paperwork intensive and just expensive to run in general. And because of that, they have high fees. So most mutual funds charge 1%, 1.5% to be invested in their fund. And what that means is if you have $100,000 invested in this mutual fund and it's a 1% fee, you'll pay $1,000 every year in investing fees. And you don't actually pay that out of pocket with cash or with your credit card or anything. Instead, the way that it works is they just deduct that money from your investment account and it comes out of your returns. But since returns tend to be positive over time, you're still winning. It's just your returns are dampened by the fee that's embedded in that investment fund. If you fast forward a couple of decades later after the the popularity of mutual funds rose, a new type of investment fund called an exchange-traded fund was launched. And what's different between a mutual fund and an exchange-traded fund is that exchange-traded funds trade on the stock exchange, just like stocks do. So you can buy them at any point during the trading day, and you know what price you're going to get them at when you put your order in, assuming you put in a limit order. And uh, on the back end, I think there's just lots of operational efficiencies that come from running an exchange-traded fund versus a mutual fund. So the fees on exchange-traded funds are way lower than the fees on mutual funds. You can get you know, an S&P 500 uh, ETF exchange-traded fund for something like two basis points. So what that means is you pay 2% of a percent. So on that same $100,000 that you might've had invested, you would pay $20, I guess, a year. Assuming my math is right, but yeah, way lower fees. And the reason why those fees are so important is that they actually compound over time. So if you take a really simple example where you you have a 1% fee, and a 6% return every year. Let's just to keep the math simple. So the first year, instead of going to $106,000 on a 1% fee, you go to $105,000. And then that difference between your pre-fee return and your actual return gets wider and wider every year because of the compounding nature of investment returns. So even though a 1% fee might not sound like very much, if you're investing for a 20 or a 30 year time horizon, it can mean hundreds of thousands of dollars before you know it, you know, or it's really, really slippery. Yeah. Millions, depending on kind of what, what scope of money you're talking mm-hmm. about, the investing fees really, really add up over time. And I kind of mentioned earlier how we think fees are really low hanging fruit. And the reason why is because it's something that you can do to be guaranteed to have better investment returns in your pocket at the end of the day. If you have two investment funds and one's a 1% fee and one's a five basis point fee, you take the five basic basis point fees instead and your investment returns after fees and taxes will go up by 0.95% every year. So we think, you know, fees are a really low hanging fruit. The investment management industry is really trending towards lower and lower fees every year. So that's a good thing for investors around the world. But I would say to, you know, if you're invested in anything, go take a moment to look up what the fees are for the products that you're in, because they might be higher than you'd imagine. Some are, I we've seen some as far as like Two to three percent. Now, to give you guys any idea, if you're looking at, and and I really want to express this because this is so important to me, if you're looking at hundred thousand dollars that you've saved up and everything, and you're investing that for um, thirty years, and you're getting a six percent return on your money, and let's say you just add whatever three hundred bucks, um, that's uh, um, 300 bucks uh, a year, that's roughly at the end of that 30 years, that's $700,000. Now, if you took 2% off that, which 2% sounds like 
nothing. Um, you would end up with instead of 700,000, you would end up with 330,000. That 2% is f- almost 50% of your entire capital gone over 30 years. And I think that's one of the most destructive forces on wealth in the stock market that people aren't looking at because they don't it, they don't think it's that big of a deal. Like you said, it's a thousand bucks a month. In 30 years though, What's the difference of your retirement of three hundred and you know forty thousand dollars versus seven hundred thousand? What's your earnings it's potential? Difference. It's humongous difference. And I mean, once again, take it the other way and put it on. If you did ten percent versus six percent, it's two point four million. That's the difference. Wow. So when I'm looking at um, investments and stock returns, you see why losing money is so detrimental. Because although you think that 2% fee may not be a lot, let's say that 2% fee you have, but then also you lose another 2% because your stocks perform poorly. Now you're 4%, right? Versus a fund manager that, or a private investor that doesn't have those fees. So their fees are down to, you know, like you said, point something, right? And they can make 3% more. The difference between you two is one person has 200000 and the other person has $2.4 million. Um, starting out with the exact same money, doing the exact same thing. It seems like nothing because it's so small, but it's massive. And when you look at this effect of wealth and compounding, it's one of the great divides. And you see people that are very wealthy when they get older, and you see people that aren't, and it's little things that make a huge difference. That's why risk, you need to change your viewpoint of risk and you need to look at risk in the long term. That's why rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is don't forget rule number one. And especially in the stock market, because most of us are not actively engaged and we don't have the resources of funds. We don't have attorneys. We don't have you know underwriters, all these things going on. So we're just partially playing and hoping that over the long term, we do better than not. But 2% difference, it's huge. Absolutely. And I think you touched on one really good thing in your discussion of that. And that's those percent fees that you pay, 2% or 1% or whatever the amount is, you end up paying those whether your stocks go up or whether they go down. So on the downside, they can really kind of exacerbate your negative returns in, in a bad year. Something worth keeping in mind as well. Absolutely. You get a 2% return, it's actually zero. And you do that a few times and look at what that does to your compounding nature. It's, you know, it's it's a big, big, big effect. Um, awesome. So now I want to talk about here before we end, um, timing markets, entrances and exits. People view all oh, the stock market is going to go down, so I'm not going to invest. Oh, the stock market's going to go up, um, so I'm going to invest. Uh, This seems to be one of the most pivotal talking points at all. Should I invest in the stock market now? Should I not? Um, What do you see, and what are your thoughts on this? I think that if you look at the evidence for the efficiency of timing markets, there's not really a lot to be said for whether or not you can get good at it. So what I mean by that is that there's so many factors that go into whether the market goes up or down that even the most brilliant investors in the world don't have any ability to accurately forecast the direction of it in the short term, especially. I think in the long term, we all know stocks tend to go up and to the right, and that's wonderful. But in the short term, 
I would not want to take any wagers on whether I think stocks are going to be up or down a year from now. And I think even if you look at the last year, we've had a terrible global pandemic. We've had lots of you know controversy politically, and the stock market's gone up. So, uh, I, yeah, absolutely. So that doesn't make sense if you just look at the events that have mm-hmm. happened. But here we are. So well, and it shows how that, investment philosophies, although they may be right, the outcome could be wrong. So, and yeah. I see this a lot with short sellers. A lot. You have guys that are short, and they act. They accurately predict the events, but they inaccurately predict the outcomes. And the pandemic is a perfect example of that. And that's due to a fiat system, right? So, mm-hmm. if the if you know if the U.S. government's going to become the new consumer because it's just handing money out left and right, and money becomes free. That effect on assets has way more effect than whether or not consumers have jobs. And that's sad, but it's true. Right. So our advice kind of given all that and kind of in addition to what you said is that we don't think people can actually time the market, at least not the majority of the time. You might get lucky here and there or things might work out in your favor. But broadly speaking, just especially based on all like the academic literature that's out on this topic, no one seems to really... Like market timing doesn't seem to be a skill that you can actually build up over time with practice. So what we recommend to people is to implement a strategy called dollar cost averaging. And what dollar cost averaging means is you just want to take the same amount of dollars every month or every week or every biweekly period or on some kind of periodic time cycle. And you want to invest that money into the stock market, regardless of whether it's going up, down, sideways, backwards, who cares? So, you know, a good example is a typical employee who gets paid biweekly. Don't really, you know, it doesn't matter what the stock market is doing. You should take the same portion of your paycheck every month and sock that into stocks. If stocks are going up, that's great. But if stocks are going down, it just means that you get to buy more shares of the companies you want to be invested in with that same amount of money that you're putting away every month. You know, it's interesting because when you look at a 23-year average, and if you look at dollar cost averaging, it actually turns out that the ups and downs of the markets don't matter um, because of that. The same $10 is the same $10. It just gets more. So it averages out over a long period of time to be the exact same. Um, This is a strategy that's interesting that I obviously love and I do because I do not believe that anybody can predict the market. Um, Anybody that uh, tells you that I think is, you know, a snake oil salesman because of the simple fact that how can you know everything, Right. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, You never know when, you know, Korea is going to go, North Korea is going to shoot over an atomic bomb or something. We just don't know. Now, with that said, um, because of that, I focus on fundamentals. Even in my real estate business, people ask, is now a good time to buy? I'm like, I don't know. I'm always buying. I'm buying in up markets. I'm buying in down markets because I'm focusing on the strategy. I buy good deals that I can control, turn value. I redeploy that capital. So, once again, like people say, are you, are you buying now? Yes, in a down market. All that means for me is I buy tend to buy more, more assets during the down market than I do at the top, but it's not because I'm timing markets, like you said. It's not because I'm like, oh, I'm going to stop as much now. It's just because the, uh, the ability for me to do has been constrained. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in real estate, just from my experience buying, you know, I have a couple of rental properties or whatever, but in my experience, there's always opportunities for the person who's willing to kind of look the hardest and find, you know, uncovered or undiscovered gems, I guess, you know? Absolutely. hundred percent. There always is. And two, that's also relevant in the market. A perfect example of this 
is in a diversified portfolio when you're looking at it. Who in the world would have predicted what Tesla did in a year? Like global pandemic, we have a massive, you know, political unrest. We have job loss. You know, we have people that are losing their homes and Tesla is like doubling, right? There's just no way, you, you know, once again, that outcome is unknown. So anyways, um, where can people get a hold of you? Where should they reach out? Um, I don't want to take all your time. Thank you so much for being on here. I could literally talk about you know stock markets and investing stuff all day long. It's so intriguing to me. And uh, um, it's something that we don't talk a lot about uh, on this podcast. So I'm very grateful for you to come in. Um, we could have spent a whole other hour talking about technology in this space and what you guys are doing. I would love to talk about that because I think that has a great... Um, uh, a great impact on the industry and the market, like you mentioned, ETFs. Uh, so we will have you come on another time uh, to discuss how your technology and other technology is coming into uh, play roles in the market. Where can people go to find you? Yeah, so if you want to check out the the portfolio management solution that we've built to help DIY investors put their own, you know, build their own robo advisors in their brokerage account, our website's Passive. That's P A S S I V Passive.com. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, our account is Passive Team. You can also follow me personally. My handle's Nick J. McCullum. Awesome. Right on, man. Well, hey, thank you again. We appreciate your time. We appreciate you coming in and sharing some thoughts and talking about investing. It's very obviously important for people to be thinking about these things right now, especially where they don't want to go. And that is sound advice. I couldn't agree more with you, and I think everybody should take it. Go look Nick up. Go check out their tools. I think they're really cool. And uh, we'll talk to you later, man. Awesome. Thanks a bunch, AJ.